Hey, this is Alex Forbes. I'm a professional songwriter as well as a songwriting coach. And you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the extraordinary Sherry Chung a superstar television and movie composer. She has composed the scores for Kung Fu and for the animated series Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai. I wonder what a Mogwai is. She'll tell us. And she co-composes for the series Riverdale and Batwoman. Her films include The Lost Husband, Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase, and The Other Side of Home. She also composes music for documentaries and commercials. I'm getting tired here. And if that wasn't enough, Sherry is also a pianist, a vocalist, a performer and songwriter, and she's released two albums. There's nothing this woman hasn't done. And maybe most important of all for me, she's from my hometown, Queens, New York. And in the middle of this episode, we are gonna do what I call a song fest that I like to do with all my musician guests. I've asked Sherry to send me a few things that are among her best works. We'll play a little bit and we'll talk about it. You'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know if you're a regular listener here that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, it was easy. I chose the song New York City Groove from the album Made in New York by my band Project Grand Slam. Why was it easy? Well, Sherry's a New York gal, and she definitely has a New York City groove. So this song just fits. So Sherry Chung, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you so much. It's fantastic to be here with you. I got to hear about this. Let's start with this. Were you Mets or Yankees? Yankees, for sure. Sorry. I, or, or not sorry. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, I'm a Yankees fan. It was in my DNA from the beginning. But you grew up in Queens because most people coming from Queens are Mets fans. So why did you go to the Yankees? So I, I was born in Queens, but I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm New York. But I'm kind of like, there's Long Island, there's also Jersey, there's also Maine and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and DC. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of mixed, you know, I, I kind of have my favorites from every state along the Northeast and the, and, and New England as well. So, you know. Did you live in all those places? I lived in all of the, all those places as well. So, so it's, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, you know, and I'm over here in Los Angeles and I feel like I'm a Cali girl with like a New York sensibility you know <laughs> is that like a valley girl a cali curl 
I can't like, oh yeah. Yeah. What West Coast girl with a new, with an East Coast mindset? I don't know. Or, or maybe an East Coast vocabulary. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, tell me about all these different places. Why were you in all these different places? Were you going to school? Were you working there? What was happening? No, no, no. I, it was it was a childhood. It was is what my parents did for a living, and they we just we just moved around a lot. But it was actually really great because I I was so involved in music when I was younger, especially through the church. So we went to all these different places, and we just kind of like met up with different people in different churches and different vibes, and just you know I just so where a lot of my musical background came from. Were your parents musicians? Not so much. They were more missionaries. <laughs> so. <laughs> Very much. No, but my, my mom played the piano. And, and like I said, in the church that we were involved in, it was there was just a lot of music that was involved. Uh, you know, it, it's a part of it. Um, and so it became a part of my life as well. And, I, and I, I'm a classically trained pianist. So a lot of my musical background was was kind of a, a very formal training. And then there was a lot of application in the church. OK, but what got you into music? Because normally, you know, parents kind of push their kids into something. And it doesn't sound like your parents pushed you into music. No, I was one of those kids that like wanted to do it. I, I like really, really wanted to do piano lessons. And I begged my mom to do piano lessons. She's like, really? And it was around four or five. And she's like, okay, fine. You know, we'll see. You say you want to do it, you know? And because I think a lot of parents, you know, I did a lot of teaching as well, you know, growing up. And so it's like, I get it. A lot of, a lot of kids, they think they want to do it. But when it comes to the hard work, they don't really. But I was that kid that I was like, you couldn't get me to stop practicing piano. You know, I just wanted to do it. I don't know. And then and then it became more of a creative thing for me. I didn't I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, I just wanted to play the music that was there that existed, classical music, technical stuff. But then after a while, I realized, oh, I really like to I, I really like to sing and play the piano. And then kind of I just sort of naturally started doing them together. And then that was that was the creative vibe for me, I guess. I don't know. I was just born with it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're a real self-starter, I have to tell you. You know, so many kids, you have to push into everything, whatever it is that they're doing. I started out playing trumpet because my father played the trumpet, and I hated to practice. And it was my mother that said, you're going to practice every day, 20 minutes. And she said, one day you're going to thank me for this. And she was right. And she was right. I did thank her for that. But I'm so interested that you were a self-starter in all of this. What gave you that self-starting, you know, idea? I don't know, but I, I honestly believe I wouldn't be able to do anything else. Like I can't do anything else. You know, like like my like my <laughs> sister, my sister's a nurse. My, you know, I mean, like I have so many friends and family members that are just they're so smart. They just they they're into all everything. And I meet so many people that are like scientists and lawyers. You know, people who are doing real jobs. <laughs> and and I'm like, wow, I could never. I just couldn't. I I'm not I'm not that smart. I'm not that smart. <laughs> so, oh come on, the, I don't buy that at it's all. It's the only thing I can do. <laughs> But listen, it's an extraordinary talent that you have. And I want to understand, because you said you started off doing classical. Did you ever aspire to be just a classical pianist, you know, going out and doing performances? Yeah, I did. I, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. I was entering competitions. I say this a lot, but I, I, but I hope your listeners can follow through with, because I, I was I was really talented when I was younger, but then my age caught up with my talent. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so it was like when I was younger and I could play really fast, I could play very technically pretty well. It was like, oh, wow, look, she's so young. She's good. But honestly, as I got older, I realized that my my technical talent for, for classical music, you know, it, my drive was there, but there was only so, so good, quote, air quotes, that, that I was going to be, you know, and so, and I, I had a really bad experience during a a performance once and I just blanked and I blanked and, and I'm sure all performers have that experience but it was one that I was like 
I don't need to put myself through this. I don't want to do this. And I just realized this isn't for me, but I also realized simultaneously that I was just far more creative than, than classical training, which is, by the way, is very creative, but I wanted to compose. I wanted to write. I wanted to, I wanted to play the, the stuff of the greats, but I also wanted to, to try my hand at, at writing music as well. Okay. I got to ask you the question though. When you said you blanked, what did that mean? Did you just stop playing? Did you improvise? Did you skip a little bit? What'd you do? No, and that was the crazy thing. I couldn't improvise. I didn't improvise. I I couldn't remember. I got um. It was a it was some performance, and it was just I I was I was sort of distracted by like the lights shining from the piano and the stage, and there were cameras, and it just it just it just distracted me, and I hadn't had a lot of experience at that level of performing, and I was just. I just forgot. I just, I came out of the moment and couldn't get back in. And by the way, I know a lot like you and probably yourself included. I know a lot of really fantastic performing musicians and there's a certain level of performing that I have done that I enjoy doing. It's just not classical. It's not, you know, it's the stuff where you can, if you do, if you do blank, you can improvise, you can pick it up, but classical music, exactly. I mean, at least I can't, there's some people that probably can, but not me. And I just, you know, I, I know so many really fantastic musicians that, especially recording musicians, that when that red light goes on to record, they're just on. I'm the opposite. As soon as that red light goes on, I'm just like, I, I freeze. So it, it's a skill unto itself. And that, that was not one that I particularly possess. <laughs> I totally understand. You know, I go up to the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts a lot, where there's a place called Tanglewood, which you're probably familiar with. Yes. And they have, you know, the Boston Symphony and extraordinary musicians playing there. And I'm always amazed the pianists that they bring in, they're world-famous pianists. They all have these 20, 30-minute extraordinary pieces totally memorized. And I'm saying to myself, don't they ever miss a part? Don't they ever, as you said, blank? And what happens if that does occur? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't happen. But in improvisational music, what I play, I mean, we always come to a certain point. You know, Somebody forgets there's a bridge here or there's another verse there. What is it about classical musicians that have them memorize this stuff like that? I don't know. I think I think it's I think I think you're bringing up a really good point that it's like it's it's a different mindset and one that I really enjoyed to a certain point. You know, when it when it came time to like employ it in a in a perfect performance, that wasn't me. But when it was about practicing, I love the tediousness. I love the tedium of practicing over and over and over and over and over. I loved that. But I but employing it and having it really matter and put on the line, that was not me. But but then but then when you get to the improvisation and you get to making music with a group of people and and having that synergy, it's a different kind of thing. And by the way, I know I know lots of classically trained musicians, I'm sure you do as well, that that can do both, that love both. You know, they're 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 technically amazing and they're improvisationally fantastic. And I I'm I'm all right at both, <laughs> but you, but I use it, but I, I will say this, I use it for my composing. I use it as tools. I use my hands on the piano as to, and, and my improvisation skills and improv skills to write the music, to come up with the things and my hands having the technique, you know, can, can execute a lot of the ideas that I have. And then MIDI can help me with the rest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I, I've sort of taken what I needed from both of those worlds. I'm not an expert. I'm not great at either one of them, but I've taken what I needed and put it together. And, and now it, they're, they're just really good, great tools of mine. Well, you've gone on to have an extraordinary career. And I want to talk about that because 
composing the kind of music that you do for film and for television. I mean, it's a certain skill set. The only person I can think of that comes to mind that's extraordinary at that, besides you, is John Williams, another guy that plays at Tanglewood all the time. How did you get into that aspect of music? That's very kind of you, Robert. <laughs> You're the female John Williams. That's the oh, way I think. Oh, do go it. on. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is, that's really nice. I mean, look, I mean, I, those of us in the industry, those of us not in the industry, we, we all know the household name John Williams, because if we didn't grow up on his music, we are still growing up on his music, you know, and it's or, or, or the kids are growing up on his music as well. So he's, he's sort of this timeless icon, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I saw a movie. I saw a particular movie, it was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with an amazing score by Michael Kamen. And of course I'd seen movies prior to this, I was maybe 12 or 13, but I saw this and I I just, I had never, you know, emotionally experienced the film or a film with a score before. Like I just, I just had, or in this way, I should say. And it really, really moved me and I would just, I found the score, I listened to the score, it was my first compact disc, it was my first soundtrack and I just, I mean, it's possible to play those, to wear those things out, you know, and I, and I, I bought a couple of copies because I would play it all the time and I, I recorded it onto my cassette so I could take it with my Walkman because I didn't have a Discman yet, you know, and it was just, I mean, it was just, it just. You realize you're talking about all this technology that doesn't exist anymore. I know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's coming back though. I mean, well, in certain ways. All right. I hope it is. Yeah. But I mean, it, it just, it. You know, even at that age, at a younger age, I realized that was what I wanted to do. And I didn't know much about it, you know, and the internet wasn't what it was then, what it is, or it wasn't then what it is now. So the ways of figuring things out and learning how to do it was like, you got to go to school for it because there's really no other way. And even then there wasn't a whole lot of school curriculums and programs for it. There were definitely a couple. So I, I went the more formal training route and went to school for, for composition and theory. And it's interesting, you just said something earlier about like, it, it's a, like film, film and television composing is this separate skill set. And I would agree with you. I think of myself as a composer first and then as a film composer. And the reason I differentiate the two is because I, I do believe that composing and writing music within very strict and specific parameters is a different skill set than just composing music. And I'm not downplaying just composing music. I don't mean it that way when I put the word just in front of it. But writing something for one from one's own heart, for one's own self, for the sake of someone else hearing it, for the sake of expressing oneself is certainly one skill set, if you will, or it's just one endeavor. But to do it in in within the parameters of time, of budget, other cooks in the kitchen, of other artistic visions and creative visions that you need to take into consideration. And then of parameters of it working to a certain kind of picture, a certain uh, characters, a certain actor's face, certain instruments don't work on other, uh, certain instruments don't work on, on, on actors as well as they work on other actors. And it's those are all kinds of considerations and parameters that have nothing to do with putting a note on the page. <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying. And you know, you're creating music that goes along with another medium, film or television, and you're creating an emotion that goes along with the character or the event that's taking place. It's a very different skill set. I had a guy on the podcast, maybe you know him, named Neil Martin from Ireland, and he's also another extraordinary film and television composer. And we were talking about that skill set of what it's like to watch something that a director has created, 
And you then have to figure out what's the music that works best with that particular scene or emotion. It's a very, very extraordinary skill set. Well, I think it's terrifying. And I think it's also really invigorating. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the blank canvas, right? It's the blank canvas. And, and in my opinion, for me, the hardest part in starting a project is that what I call the first offer, as in I've been hired on the project, I've now seen the film, and now it's time for me to, to, to go away and, and write something and then have them listen to it for the first time. You know, it's one thing when they say, oh, well, we're, we're past that part of it. And it's like, oh my gosh, I, I, I think that theme for that, for that character or that sound and that musical palette is really, really working. And I'm like, great. And then I'm, now I've created my sandbox and now I've got my tools and I've got my little toys and now I've got all my things and now I can go and play as it were, even though the rest of it is also hard work. But that first offer of them hearing what my first ideas are is, is really terrifying because, because, you know, I, I do say that there, I'm a composer first and a film composer second, but I'm still a composer. I'm still creating something from nothing. And when someone doesn't, when it doesn't work for somebody, when it's not what they were thinking and they don't think it works, because a lot of times it's not what they were thinking and they're like, but why does that work? I'm like, great, right, take, take some time, get your, wrap your head around it. I'll go away. I'll, I'll, I'll do some other things. But when it does work, it's really, it's really amazing. When it doesn't, it, it can still be amazing because the process of getting to a place where you're both on the same page, that's kind of a beautiful process. It's a, it's a very collaborative. I can imagine. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. When I started the Follow Your Dream podcast two and a half years ago, we were in the throes of the pandemic. Everything was disrupted and the future was uncertain. Back then, I had only a goal for the podcast, to inspire people to follow their dream, just as I followed my musical dream. So I set forth on a new adventure. From that humble start, I'm pleased to say that the podcast has grown exponentially to the point where it now is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, has won awards, and has listeners in 200 countries. Imagine that. Each episode takes me and my guest on a world tour to thousands of listeners on every continent. And my guests are spectacular. I've had so many famous and accomplished musicians, actors, directors, photographers, and other creatives. People who followed their dream to success. The podcast is proof of my motto. You're never too old, and it's never too late to follow your dream. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And sign up for our weekly emails, which preview our episodes and much more. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. So let me ask you this. Do you start with, you know, the, the medium and do you create for that particular medium or do you have things that you've already written and sometimes you say, okay, I think this will fit into such and such. Does the music ever come before the medium? That you're dealing with 
You know what? For for me, it doesn't. For for me, it doesn't. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like I love what I'm doing. You know, like, like this is what I think it fits me the the best. Whether or not I'm good at or successful at it is something that I would want to do and pursue. Whether I wasn't, you know, whether it wasn't for gainful employment, you know, or not. So so for instance, to answer your question, if I'm given a script first, meaning they haven't shot it yet, or they, you know, they just, they just, it's not ready. They, they, they're, not, they're not ready to show anything yet. So they want me to read a script and I read something and I, and I, I definitely get ideas, musical ideas starting to brew and percolate. And I have, and I can talk about those things with them. But when I see the picture, when I see the characters that they hired or the, sorry, the actors that they hired, when I see the costume design, when I see the, the color, the, the textures, the mood, when I see the angles, the pacing, of everything, of how they shot it, it, it's a totally different. There are very, there's only been a several times where the same ideas that I that I conceptualize in script form translated to picture, to visual form. It's just for me, I just I get completely influenced by what I see, and I want to go with that because I have lot, probably like a lot of us. I've got an iPhone that's got my voice memos, and you can scroll for days of different ideas that I've hummed or sang or played into the phone, thinking, oh, one day I'll. Uh, uh, I'll uh, use uh, that one. Yeah, I'll use that one. And <laughs> it never works. I mean, it, it, it's, I, I have a couple of times I've gone back and I'm like, eh, that's for something else. It was an emotional attachment to something else, you know? So I'm, I, for me, I'm, I'm just very influenced by what I'm seeing and the story that I'm being told and what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. And I come up with ideas that way. So when do you come in? Is it after the film is completed, after a first cut? When do you start to do your work? It's been everything from script only form, as in they haven't shot it yet, you know, all the way to, you know, we we've got it, we've got to score this in like as soon as you can, you know, like, where it's, it's they've already locked their picture and now it's ready for for the music. So everything, you know, so everything before they've shot until well into post and everybody's sort of tapping their foot impatiently waiting for music. <laughs> you know, if 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 people haven't done it, if you ever watch a movie with no music in background, and then you see the same film or television show with the music, it's a completely different experience, isn't it? It, it is. And if you listen to interviews um, about Star Wars and, and John Williams, I mean, it was said that when, when, when Star Wars had no music in it, it just seemed rather silly, rather campy and, and, and almost, I mean, like, like this movie was just going to flop because it was, but then, then when you have, you know, John Williams score in there and you have the scope and, and, and he took it seriously and the music takes it seriously and the music really, it justifies everything that, you know, that, that kind of could have really fallen flat as another example. And this is, this is one that really worked for me was Buffy the Vampire Slayer was one of like my favorite shows growing up. And I realized it was actually one of the first like movie shows. I mean, it was, it was, it was a show, but, but it was also one of the first things I watched where I realized as it, it, with, a, with an active brain, you know, with an active brain of like, oh, I want to actively listen to this music, where I realized that the music actually had such a responsibility you know, this tiny little 90 pound actress, there's no way that she can like, you know, beat, beat down all these demons from the hell mouth, you know what I'm saying? And be, and do all these crazy things that she was able to do with these giant people, but she could. And the music told me that it was, it was believable. It wasn't just, yes, it was the effects and yes, it was her great acting and it was the choreography and all that, but it was also the music. So I, to your point, if you can get your hands on a, on a cut of a film that doesn't have any music at all, 
it's a different experience. Totally different. It doesn't mean that it's a bad experience. It's just a very different experience. Oh, it's bad. It's, it's not nearly as good bad. as when the music's <laughs> in there. All right, I have to ask this question. We've talked a little bit about John Williams. So much of what he's done, these theme songs that he's created for these different movies have become part of our life. When you write and for the things that you've done, do you also create a theme song for each movie or, or television show? Or are they kind of bits and pieces within the script of the film? I'm a thematic writer, and I think a lot of the projects that I work on sort of call for some sort of theme. Um, and it could be a melodic theme, or it could also be a gesture. It's like something that's just like a couple of notes as opposed to like a much longer melody or a complete melody. You know, you know, kind, kind of, you know, for, for some of your listeners who may not be as musical, think of it as a complete sentence as opposed to just a phrase. Or sometimes it's a texture. Sometimes it can be a sound. It can be something, something identifiable like that. But I, I think that audience, I think that films and TV programs, I think that they're stronger when they have thematic, you know, musicals, like something that's musical or something that's... Something that identifies that film or that television show, huh? Yeah, and I, and I also, I think one of the reasons is because even if you don't even realize what the theme was, there is something innate in our brains as audience members that when we recognize something, it's just as human beings, there's just something about it that there, there, the familiarity of it is is both comfortable it's and it's relatable, and it kind of makes you an active participant when you're watching. You're like, oh, I know that theme. Oh, I hear that. Even if you hate it, even if you hate the theme, you know, if you don't like it, just, or, or, you know, there's just something about it that makes an audience and pulls them in, draws them in, and makes them an active participant that I think makes an experience much stronger. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite theme that you've created? Oh, oh gosh, that I've created? Yes. Um, you know what? I, I have to say I'm, I'm proud of the work and the themes that I've done for Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai particularly the um, the gremlins themselves, their their theme, this sort of circusy tritone oompa type of type of thing. And I, I think I'm proud of it because part of the task, if you will, part of the assignment, if you will, um, and part of the the challenge, but also kind of part of the, the joy in in working on Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai. It, for those of your listeners who don't know, it's an animated prequel series to the original Gremlins movies, um, directed by Joe Dante, scored by Jerry Goldsmith. And so the incredible task that I had to do was to fit into that world, yet be something new and different, right? And, and nobody said modernize it. Nobody said, we don't want the 80s synth. Nobody said, we do want the 80s synth. Nobody said, you have to be Jerry Goldsmith. Nobody, nobody said any that I had to do anything except for we really, we want the entire show the show in its entirety to, to pay homage to the Steven Spielberg, Amblin, Jerry Goldsmith, the whole Joe Dante, the whole thing. But we also want to create our, our own world. Just as a side note, there was also a location challenge, which was not challenge, but location assignment, which was we're in the 1920s in Shanghai. And so there was that kind of, you know, so my, my point is to answer your question, I'm proud of that theme because I think it really does, I'm hoping audiences will agree that it does fit in with the world of Jerry Goldsmith and Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante, as well as, you know, as, as well as, you know, being its own thing and something that's unique to the show and hopefully unique to maybe, maybe Sherry Chong, I don't know. <laughs> All right. This is a good segue into the Thongfest portion of this interview. I've asked Sherry to send me some things 
that kind of are representative of some of her best works. And we're listening right now to the first of them. This is Now He Knows That We Know. about this so this is from a show called based on a true story that's on peacock streaming on peacock currently it has kaylee cuoco chris messina tom bateman uh the creator and showrunner is a phenomenal writer and, and showrunner and the creative craig rosenberg and i don't want to give it away in case any of your listeners haven't watched the show yet but it's it's kind of a it's not really a murder mystery it's a little bit of a murder mystery but it's more of a comedic thriller and um it really it really plays upon, you know, an everyday couple that's just kind of on the down and outs in their marriage, in their finances, in their careers. And they're just, they embark on a crazy journey to uh, create a podcast with a serial killer. And mayhem ensues and the, you know, they, they try and make sure that, you know, that they're not caught, that the serial killer isn't caught but it's become a very lucrative business for them. So now they're they're having a harder time to, you know, not to out themselves. But it really kind of plays upon America's obsession with like the true crime, you know, like America's true crime obsession, which I didn't really even know about at the time before I started the project. And I was like, America's got a true crime obsession? Yeah, it's true. It's like one of the top subjects for podcasts for sure. I know. But what's interesting to me is that the music that you sent, and we're going to listen to some other things, there's an emotion that came out of it me in each one of the cases. In that one, to me, there was an excitement. There was almost like a chase scene kind of excitement that I found from that piece. Let's listen to the next one. This is transporting the body. This one to me had kind of like an eerie, scary kind of emotion to it. I hope I'm right, but tell us about that one. Yeah, no, it's also from the same show based on a true story. And I think what was really great about that show too is that it, it being a comedic thriller, there's also a lot of heart and emotion to it. So you're really it's kind of playing upon the different, you know, facets of you know, the, the character who we find out to be the serial killer is is a character that oddly that the audience is sort of challenged by because it's a serial killer. He's like not a good person. But he's also a really likable character. He's also a human and, and I mean, a human being that we can kind of relate to in some ways. And so there's there's a lot of aspects about the show and and I and I'm and, I'm, and the challenge to score it was also that was also that as well. You know, how do we make it in heartfelt when it needs to be funny and comedic and giving us permission to laugh but also giving us you know like letting us know yeah this is this is gross and this is awful and this is really bad and terrible and this is you know you know so so it kind of runs that whole gamut i, I don't know if that cue in particular does but the score at large really has to kind of do a lot of that of that you know sides you know just fancy footwork maybe as it were 
like that fancy footwork. All right, let's go to the next one. This is called Gremlins Wreaking Havoc. And you know what? As I was listening to it, I said, yeah, this is exactly what it sounds like. This one is from, as the name uh, in, in, uh, suggests, it's from Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwites, yes, season one of the animated series, animated prequel series. And this was the theme that I was talking about and referring to. It has this sort of silly circus tritone, you know, oopa oopa. And, you know, and it was one of the reasons why, again, just to kind of bring it up again, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm proud of it is because oftentimes when you're working on an episodic project, you create themes for characters, but you don't always know where those characters are going to go. You don't know if they're going to die. You don't know if they're going to develop and progress. You don't know if they start bad and get good or, or vice versa. You don't know, you know, so oftentimes you, you don't know whether your theme is going to have to be heroic at times or emotional at times. You just have to kind of, I don't know, try your best to run it through the gauntlet of things that you're going to need that it might need to do and make sure that if you slow the theme down or speed the theme up or make it or put it in a different meter it's still going to work and hold up and i think that's one of the reasons that i'm proud of it is because i do think that throughout the series it ended up holding up and it ended up being something that could be a little bit more um i mean i would i could never possibly say that my work is iconic but maybe people might remember it you know and it's and it might be something like that so it's just a it's it's something I'm proud of, and again, it's not it's not a brag moment, but it's something that I think is is as a composer in this industry, it it, it can be a difficult task to write a theme that works, quote unquote. Well, listen, I totally understand what you're saying, and you just mentioned something that I had not even thought of, which is you're doing something, and you don't know if it's a series where that series is going, where the characters are ultimately going, so you have to kind of anticipate. And do your best to, I don't know, cover all the bases or at least go in a certain direction. I wonder if the writers ever take from the music the directionality that you're kind of aiming at when you do something up front and they're looking at something past that. I have had situations on certain projects where that is where, where I've been told that that was the case, where where they said, oh, because we remembered your theme from this thing, you know, we really wanted to incorporate something musical, you know, in this season as well. So it, it it's it's such a it's such a it's such a cool thing when that happens because I oftentimes that you know it's just not something that I, I'm usually not in the process that early. But when you're when you're doing something that's either a sequel you know, or you're working with the same people again, you actually do get sometimes that opportunity because we've worked together before and now they, they, we know how each other works. And so they might say, Hey, I remember your themes and I'm so excited to work with you again. I remember you did this. Can you write me something preemptive for, you know, for this type of thing too. So it's, it's a cool, it's very cool when that, when that happens. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes here. Okay. We're all getting this from you. <laughs> all right. We're going to do the last one. Now this is Sam restores order which to me had kind of a foreboding type of feel to it.
Yeah, there. Um, Sam is one of the main characters in Gremlin: Secrets of the Mogwai, and he's he's a boy of oh gosh, I don't know, eight years old, and it's him and Gizmo that just have their their crazy and and another character, L, that have their crazy journey in trying to return Gizmo to his original home, the Valley of Jade, and um, there's just there's lots of moments in that in the first season where he is. You know, having to to they, they run into a lot of a lot of darkness, a lot of evil, a lot of ne'er do wells, and Sam, this little kid, is just you know how very Amblin of them is you know is really tasked with you know restoring order or fixing things or you know he stumbles upon mystical powers and really has to dig deep into his into his soul and the power of doing the right thing and and he's he's restoring order in the in this moment, but it's it is a little bit foreboding because it's sort of this sort of, you know, seismic, you know, global, you know, fixing things. And it's and it's a happy thing, but it's also meant to be, you know, the scope of it is meant to be pretty, pretty epic. All right. It looks like I guessed right on a couple of these things anyway. Yeah. Uh, we have been talking here with the extraordinary Sherry Chung. Sherry, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was just a great experience. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you to your listeners. I really appreciate it. What, what a joy to be here. And we're now going to listen again to the song that started the episode. It's my song called New York City Groove. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band, at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. Puts me right in the mood.